Hello, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCauley, and today I am joined by Lee Drogan, founder of Estimize. Lee, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Why don't you kick us off by giving us a few minutes on your background and how you got into FinTech and started a company, and then maybe a few more minutes on what Estimize does and why it's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I took a bit of a circuitous route into the fintech uh, ecosystem. Uh, so I went to the University of San Diego for my undergrad, um, and I'm an autodidact, so I don't, I don't really learn too well in school. Uh, I basically went out to San Diego to sit on the beach and read. And uh, between my sophomore and junior year, I uh, had an internship at a quantitative hedge fund, which ran kind of an earnings acceleration and analyst estimate revision momentum statistical arbitrage strategy uh, in White Plains, New York, about 40 minutes north of the city. And uh, I spent the summer there, had a great time, really got embedded with the firm. We ran about $400 million uh, in AUM. And at the end of the summer, the hedge fund manager uh, came to me and said, you're not going back to school. And I said, wait, what? And he said, no, like, you're staying here and I'm hiring you and you're going to finish up at night at Hunter College in, in the city, uh, you know, where I was living in the city at the time doing the reverse commute. And uh, I, I said, okay, and started my career up there. Um, and I spent the next three years up there uh, running one of the strategies that we did really well. Um, but I got a really interesting look at um, a bunch of different really important data sets, namely the analyst estimate data set, uh, where you know, sell-side analysts at banks estimate on earnings per share, revenue, EBITDA, margins, and all sorts of other stuff. And we were using that data set and basically arbitraging the inefficiency out of it. And there's significant inefficiencies having to do with uh, corporate access and investment banking pressures and, and all sorts of other herding behavior and, and stuff like that. Um, and so over the next couple of years, you know, ran that strategy. And in uh, 2000, early 2009, after the crash, which we did really well in, I started my own fund to do something very similar to what we were doing at Keller Capital. Um, spent the next two years doing that. But in between, um, I found this company called StockTwits, uh, which was very, very early and had just, uh, you know, gotten going. And it was very interesting to me, you know, the, the philosophy that, that Howard Linden, who I believe has either been on the podcast or, or spoken to the fintech group, um, espoused was like right up my alley. And I believed in a lot of what he believed in. But the platform, the initial platform that they had built was kind of a piece of crap. Uh, but it was very obvious where they were going. And so I basically cold called Howard and I said, look, man, uh, I know what you're trying to do here. I think it's going to be revolutionary. Uh, I really want to be involved. You know, I'm, I'm running this fund. We're doing really well, but I have a lot of time because I'm a quant, and I think I can help you out. And about about three weeks later, I was hired to come over there and work on product as the fifth employee. Um, and we ended up building a really incredible platform. It's now the largest social finance platform on the web. I believe it's about a million and a half uniques a month and just incredible data set that comes out of that. Uh, but while I was there for about two years running product and then eventually business development, uh, I learned, you know, about something that was going on inside of our community, inside of our data set over there around the fact that, you know, we had all these people on the platform, a, a bunch of which were professional analysts, you know, from the buy side, 
And they were making earnings estimates on the platform in this unstructured form. And basically, we turned around and said, well, like, what if we captured that in a structured way and then built a data set out of it? Would that data set be better than the Wall Street data set? And, you know, I, I thought back to my quant background. And um, by that time, I had actually given back all the money I was running for my fund uh, because I wanted to be in fintech full time. I thought there was way too much um, opportunity. And, you know, you can always go back to trading later in life. But, you know, at an early age, you know, it, it's hard to put everything or at a later age, it's hard to put everything into, you know, a startup. It's a different lifestyle. And um, and I decided to work up a plan and, and went and validated this idea for, uh, you know, what if we actually built this into the Stockfoots platform as a kind of a separate piece of it to collect this data in a structured way, all of these estimates, and then sell the data. Um, and we were selling the Stockfoots data to hedge funds at the time. And I, I basically went to Howard and I said, look, this is our business, man. Like, we can build this incredible data set. We have the community for it. Everybody believes in the philosophy on this platform already of, you know, uh, everybody kind of putting into the data and collaborating with each other. Why don't we do this? And Howard was kind of very lukewarm on it in the sense that, you know, Howard still believes and believed at that time that Stockfords is a media platform. Um, and I believe Stockfords was inherently a data company. And so I ended up leaving in uh, late March of 2011 to build Estimize. Um, and we, you know, raised some initial capital and we launched the platform in uh, January of 2012. And yeah, it, the idea was pretty simple. It, it was built very much as an academic experiment that if you gave the ability for anybody and everybody to contribute their earnings and revenue estimates for U.S. listed publicly traded companies, and uh, you ranked and rated them, and you had some algorithms which made sure that nobody was putting in crazy estimates or attempting to game the system, uh, that you should theoretically, based on crowdsourced theory, uh, get a more accurate and more importantly, a more representative data set of true expectations. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, uh, you know, a bunch of academics looked at our data. The Deutsche Bank Quant Research Team looked at our data. Uh, we did the same workup on our data, and it turned out that um, we had definitely produced uh, a much better data set. And we now have about 15,000 contributing analysts to the platform, about half of which are non-professionals in nature, students, uh, academics, industry experts, those kind of people. Half of them come from the buy side and independent research world. Um, yeah, the data set ends up being more accurate about 70% of the time uh, versus the Thomson Reuters uh, first call IBIS numbers or your Bloomberg numbers. So the, um, you know, the, the experiment worked and, uh, you know, now we're scaling out the community. We've got 125,000 people this quarter that will view the data on the platform. So we're, you know, we're excited. We're growing at about 150% quarter over quarter this quarter in uh, the number of contributors and the amount of data, about 50,000 estimates this quarter. So, you know, it, it's a process of, um, of building a very large community and gaining trust in a very different philosophy. And these things have uh, taken a while uh, to kind of um, be accepted within the market because, you know, this data is very important and uh, uh, everybody always, you know, everybody in finance is very smart. And so they always look for, the ways that it could eventually go wrong or, or be tainted or be screwed with. And uh, it's taken a while to get everybody to kind of accept the, um, the nature of what we've done and, and why it's valuable. That's, um, that's a solid bit of background there for our listeners that maybe weren't as familiar with the, uh, 
with the side of finance that you're working in and with, with the, the business of uh, selling data to investors. Can you maybe give us some more detail on the product itself? Like, How are you using the wisdom of crowds to do a better job than the experts do by themselves? And how are you dealing with some of the risks that I think you mentioned about people trying to game the system or people, yeah. providing, people providing estimates that are like way outside of reasonable ranges? Yeah. So, you know, the principal problem here that we're solving is that when you look at the Wall Street estimate data sets, um, this data set ends up being the most heavily correlated data set to equity direction that the market has. The expectations for future fundamentals of a company and the directionality of the revisions in those expectations are everything, right? Because if you think about... Um, the way that the market works. The market is necessarily a forward-looking mechanism. Nobody cares what a company is earning today. They only care what it'll earn tomorrow or what will happen to the company tomorrow or the industry or, or whatever. Um, what happens today is irrelevant uh, because of that forward-looking nature of the market. It's a discounting mechanism. So the way a, a buy-side analyst works is we basically say, okay, you know, Apple, I believe, is going to earn, I, this is not a real number, is going to earn $4.50 next year and uh, in the next four quarters. And it trades at a 17 times EPS number, forward EPS number now. Um, now, if I believe that, you know, consensus, uh, the real consensus of the market is um, $4 for next year, and that the stock trades at 17 times you know, forward estimates now, but I believe that it'll trade at 19 times estimates, and I believe it's going to earn $4.50. Well, I mean, just do the multiplication, right? It's the multiple times your expected uh, EPS um, gives you your price target. And if my price target is way higher than the price target of the implied current multiple and consensus a year out, uh, if that delta is very large, well, that's my alpha right there. Like that's that's where I that's where I really earn my outperformance by having a differentiated view on both the multiple and the fundamentals, or just the fundamentals, or just the multiple. Right? You have to understand which one of those you're really different on. That's that's my alpha, and so I go and pick the stocks, obviously long and short, based on you know where I see those big deltas. Now, the problem is, historically, that um, when you're trying to understand what consensus is, what's actually baked into the market right now, you have to use this Wall Street data set. But the Wall Street data set is incredibly biased in the sense that when you look at the historical trends in, in estimates from the sell side, uh, this, the IBIS data set is about 250 sell side firms that contribute to the estimates domestically. About 100 of them actually matter. You know, the other 150 are like one and two man shops, maybe three analysts. But there's about 100 firms that have, you know, a, a decent number of analysts that cover a decent number of stocks um, that you have to get in order to really represent the, the consensus. Um, but the problem is those analysts have to deal with corporate access and investment banking pressures. So one of the things that happens is if you look a year out, um, on average, the estimates for any given company four quarters from now will be about 25% too high. And the reason that they're too high um, is that when you look at investment banking and the process there, uh, a company will come to um, – you know, the investment banker at JP Morgan and say, hey, you know, we want to sell ourselves, um, you know, please run a comp analysis on what you believe we're worth relative to our peers. And then let's go and shop this company, you know, to the market. And we need to know what we're willing to, 
take in terms of an offer, right? Or a company gets an unsolicited offer like Angie's List did the other day. And Angie's List will go to their bankers and say, hey, what is this company really worth? And the bankers will sit there and say, well, you know, consensus a year out is, you know, $2 EPS and the, you know, the, the rest of your peers are trading at 10 times EPS. Uh, so we believe that, you know, you're worth 20 bucks. Um, and the reason they keep those numbers high a year out is because they want to tell the company they're worth more. Um, when in fact, that's an unrealistic number because over the next year on average, those estimates will come down by 25%. And this happens every single quarter. It's a systematic bias. We took advantage of this bias significantly at, uh, at Geller Capital and Surfview Capital, the fund that I ran. Um, and then the crazy part is in the last quarter, in the current quarter that's about to report, by the time the company reports, on average, the sell-side analysts will have brought their estimates down about 7% too low. Because when the company reports, the sell-side analysts want to be able to say, oh, yeah, the company beat their estimates, and they want to get on the conference call with the, you know, with the, um, with the CFO and the CEO and say, hey, guys, great quarter. And what this does is it gives them you know, cachet with the, with the company, and when they want to do corporate access with the buy side, they want to connect the hedge fund to the CFO. Well, now the CFO likes the J.P. Morgan analyst because he said good things about them. And this biases basically everything they do. It biases the entire data set, and the problem is not that the estimates are inaccurate. The problem is that the estimates don't accurately represent the true expectation of the market and what is baked into that price. So when Angie's List goes to sell itself and, you know, they're trading at, uh, let's say, you know, let's say they're trading at $19 a share. This actually happened. You know, this is something that's happening right now. I don't know the exact numbers, but Angie's List trading at $19 a share and the investment banker goes, we think you're worth $20 a share. And the acquiring company, who I believe is IAC, goes, yeah, yeah, your same consensus is, you know, $2 next year, but we know there's no way it's going to be $2, which is why we're only offering $19 a share and you better take it and we'll give you the 5% premium, but there's no way we're giving you a 10% premium or whatever it is. And Angie's List just said no to the offer. Um, and they could have said no for many reasons, but one of the reasons is they might be getting bad advice from, you know, their sell-side uh, analysts. Uh, they're, they're still side investment bankers because, you know, they're not paying attention to what the market really expects them to earn, which is they're losing a lot of money and they're going to lose more money next year. And it's only going south, but those estimates might be going north. So it, it's, an, it's an unreliable expectation. So what Estimize does is by bringing all of the buy side analysts, the independent analysts, the students, the industry experts, the independent traders into the fold here, what we get is both a more accurate representation, but more importantly, a more, uh, sorry, a, a more accurate number, but more importantly, a more accurate representation of what the true expectation is. So that when you go and run that comps analysis, or you run the analysis to see whether there's any really big delta between your expectation of the future price and what the consensus is, that you actually know where the true expectation is so that you can understand that better. And that's, that's the real power in our data set. And that comes about because, you know, we had 2,000 estimates for Apple. Um, we had 1,200 estimates for Google. You know, when you get all of this data, what you basically get is a wider dispersion of estimates um, and a more accurate representation because of the sample size. If you have a sample size of 30, you're obviously not going to represent something as well as if you have a sample size of 1,000.
and that's just it's just math. It's just basic statistics, um, and that's kind of what we've accomplished. Now, in order to do that, we've written some algorithms that make sure that people can't game the system. So we have algorithms that look at cluster detection. So if somebody were to go on the platform and attempt to create five different accounts and go and make relatively um, reliable estimates, but all kind of in the same area for each stock, our algorithms would pick that up and they would immediately bounce that guy out and they would um, make all of that, those estimates what we call unreliable. So the reliability algorithms that we have on the front, whenever somebody makes an estimate, what happens is these algorithms run uh, and they look at historical deviation between actual results and consensus. Uh, they look at that person's track record, how long ago did they sign up, what was their behavior, all sorts of stuff. We look for people who are posting estimates algorithmically. That happens sometimes. Um, and what it'll do is if it doesn't trust the estimate, it will put a big red flag on it, and then it'll tell the user, hey, this estimate's not going to get into the consensus. But you can still make it, and it'll get onto the platform, it'll get scored and ranked like everybody else, but it won't be included. And then what we do is we manually review all those estimates. And it, it, it's about 2% of the estimates that are made need to be manually reviewed. And then about half a percent of estimates end up getting permanently flagged. And honestly, most of them are like fat fingers, people putting a decimal point in the wrong place or, um, you know, uh, doing it in, in gap instead of non-gap. And uh, there's all sorts of stuff that, that could potentially happen that's not nefarious, but we still need to catch it to make sure that the data set is really clean. And we do a really good job of that because none of our, you know, clients on the quant side or anybody who uses the data on the front end would ever trust us if uh, we had major errors there. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you paint a somewhat cynical picture of what what is going on on Wall Street, but perhaps a story that's <laughs> not, not too unfamiliar to a lot of my classmates here at Wharton and a lot of Wharton FinTech podcast listeners. Um, and it's easy to see how by you know sort of collecting more data and collecting what would appear to be unbiased data, you can help deal with some of those issues. So once yeah, you have I, all I don't, data, I don't mean to be... So I don't, yeah. I don't mean to be a massive cynic on the entire like Wall Street apparatus. I, I think that it's really important that um, that especially students are not um, uh, ignorant is the best word, but I don't mean ignorant in a bad way. I just mean ignorant as in you know as a student you may never have been exposed to exactly what goes on. And I think it's very important to understand what the roles of a sell-side analyst and a sell-side investment banker actually are versus what people may perceive them to be. Uh, you know, the, the sell-side analysts really make their living by providing corporate access and, uh, you know, and some other kind of service-oriented things. You know, they really don't get paid for being actual analysts. It's, it's, a, it's a much smaller part of what they do. They're, they're really, in a sense, salespeople of another kind. And the investment banking guys are really salespeople. They're, and um, so I, I think it's good for everybody to understand exactly how that works and, and not be um, you know, ignorant when they may go into that job uh, on what it really is about. And I, I don't think it's a bad job at all. I think it's a very important position that, that's played as a kind of connector between the company and the hedge fund to sit in the middle of that relationship but uh, I think people should be aware of exactly what it really means to be a sell-side analyst. Absolutely. And so you're getting, I suppose, that the supply of estimates that you're getting are coming not only from professionals, but also from 
from students and other people that follow the markets and follow these companies, who are you then providing the data to? Is it just institutions and hedge funds or do you have retail investors that are also users and using the data? Yeah, uh, so one of the funny things is that the non-professional half of our community on average is actually more accurate than the professional half, um, which is kind of crazy, but it but it makes sense in that if you think about the what we call the um, uh, the, the self-selection bias in who contributes from the non-professional side, it's not like, you know, your grandma in her basement. It's a, a corporate finance student from Wharton. It's, uh, you know, or an investment management student from Wharton. It's, um, you know, an industry expert who works at LinkedIn making an estimate on monster.com. And, uh, you know, these people usually have pretty good conviction about what they're doing. And they're not running earnings models, obviously, but there's enough information out there on our platform and, and in the media and on other platforms that you can make a very educated guess at what that estimate should be. And, uh, and that's largely why the non-professional half is more accurate. Um, the way the platform works is that you have to contribute to the platform in order to see the data. Um, and so, uh, yeah, about half of our half of our uh, viewer base is, is non-professional in nature. Um, the platform is completely free, so we give all that data away for free if you're a contributor. Then what we do with it is we take all the data and we run a, a multivariate regression model through it. So we look at about 50 different attributes of uh, the biography of what was entered by the, the contributor, you know, are they professional or non-professional? Are they, uh, do they work in the retail industry, the gigs, you know, retail sector, uh, or do they work in the, um, uh, you know, the, the financial sector? Uh, are they buy side or sell side? How long have they been around? Uh, what is their previous accuracy? What's their previous accuracy on that stock or that industry? Um, we look at behavior down to how long did you spend on the page? Um, we look at all this different stuff, then we look at your estimate itself for that specific estimate, and we use this multivariate regression model to weight the consensus in favor of one analyst or the other, and we provide a, a confidence score. Um, and then we take that, that number, you know, we have the weighted consensus, which ends up being more accurate about 80% of the time, and we sell all of that data, uh, except for the identities of our contributors. We always hold that private. Uh, if the contributor does not put their real name on the platform, we never expose any of that uh, identity information. And we sell all that data to uh, large quantitative hedge funds uh, like WorldQuant, which is a $26 billion uh, quantitative hedge fund here in New York and around the world. Uh, they're actually an investor in our company as well. They were our first client uh, a couple of years ago. And they use it in their uh, multi-factor statistical arbitrage algorithms and who knows what else. You know, these are some of the most sophisticated uh, traders and, and analysts in the world. And um, we also sell our data in what we call a screener, which is for all the, you know, fundamental discretionary traders, uh, investors, analysts, portfolio managers. Um, and we sell that on the front end of the site as kind of a premium feature set so that people can understand all the connections between the data. So if you cover 60 stocks or you, you have 60 stocks on your watch list, you want to know which stocks there's a big uh, difference between the Wall Street and the estimized consensus where that, that difference is expanding in the last couple of weeks. You know, significant signals in that data there. 
um, or manage risk around your own portfolio or understand where you have the biggest differences between your estimates and consensus. And we sell that in an enterprise fashion um, to big hedge funds. I was up in Greenwich yesterday at two hedge funds, uh, and we have to go in there and we, you know, we have to pitch them one by one, and we're building a sales team over here to do that. Uh, and those are most of our clients. Um, we do have some retail, we call them prosumer clients, the screener is $500 a month uh, per seat, so it's not cheap, uh, but it's it's in the range still of like a prosumer trader who's serious, who has you know a, a decent amount of money to trade and is fundamentally driven, and it it does add a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of advantage if you have that data at your fingertips. There's a lot of ideas in there, and uh, and that's more of a uh, you know a classic enterprise SaaS model where they come straight to the platform. They uh, sign up for a free, you know, seven, I think we do 14-day trial now. And uh, at the end of it, you know, they can subscribe or, or not. And uh, that works pretty well as well, but that won't be anywhere near, like, the majority of our revenue. Eventually, it'll be a, a small percentage of it. Right. So let's, let's switch gears and go maybe a little bit higher level and talk about, you know, the future of investing, perhaps in general, along the yeah. lines of, you know, active versus passive how is that shifting and how is the split between quantitative trading and qualitative trading shifting? Um, and do you think these trends are differing at the retail level and the professional level? Yeah, great, great question. Um, some really interesting stuff taking place. I think in the last couple of years, there's been a, a dramatic shift in, in what's going on in, in this industry, both on the professional and retail level with, with all of those. So I'll just start on the, on the retail side. Um, you know, in the past, retail investors have had, uh, you know, or, or mass aff we call them mass affluent investors, have had really only a couple options. You can trade your own portfolio, which is incredibly detrimental to your financial health, um, because you know, as I look at it, and as all the statistics look at it, and as all the behavioral uh, economics and psychology looks at it, um, you know, you wouldn't be a brain surgeon without like studying to be a brain surgeon, right? Like just the same way you wouldn't be a trader without significantly studying for a long period of time to be an investment manager. Um, and people believe because the market is available to everybody that they all should trade. But I think more and more, you know, my generation, I'm 29 years old, and, and I think the generation in school now is beginning to very much understand the realities about human psychology and and that aspect of I'm not qualified to be participating actively in the market. And there's all sorts of studies that have come out recently uh, that say that millennials and, and the generation behind us are very much aware of that and refuse to invest our own money to the point where I, I will tell you, I used to run a hedge fund and I did it very successfully and I will not invest my own money um, for the reason that I, I don't have the time all day to sit there and run a strategy effectively. Um, I could if I had all that time, but but I don't, and so I shouldn't be. Um, and so investors used to have you know three options, or, or yeah, basically three options. You could invest your own money actively. You could um, give it to a wealth manager or a financial advisor, uh, which is a terrible idea, mostly because it, most financial advisors are just like you; they're not qualified either. Um, and on the you know, and there's a and, or you could give it to an investment manager, right? You could you could endeavor to find an active manager who actually wants to produce alpha, uh, who's qualified, who's you could try and get into a hedge fund, but that's difficult. And and the 
the likelihood that you're going to find a great investment manager is so incredibly low that uh, you know you shouldn't you basically shouldn't even try. That's one of the biggest unsolved problems in our industry is that, um, that good smallish or medium-sized investment managers who are not just trying to gather you know AUM, they're actually trying to outperform. Uh, they do exist. They're just incredibly hard to find and incredibly hard to uh, to vet. Um, because they usually manage somewhere between you know fifty and two, three, four hundred million dollars, uh, and you know you're not going to hear them as a brand name, so it's almost impossible to find them. There's no good platform to find them on. So those are basically your options. Um, you could have a you know wealth manager index for you, or or trade actively, God forbid. You could do it yourself, or you could find an investment manager that was good. There's really no good option in there. So along come the robo-advisors, and what they basically do is say, okay, look, we know you can't trade yourself. We know you can't find a good investment manager. We're basically going to take the strategy that the financial advisor should have been doing, which is just indexing for you, but you were paying him like 75 basis points a year to index for you, and then you were paying another, let's call it 50 to 75 basis points just to the you know the ETF or the, or the mutual fund company. So now you're paying... Um, you know, 150 basis points for indexing, which is ridiculous. And the robo advisors come along and say, "Look, let's just have uh, let's have an algorithm do it, and we're going to charge you like 25 basis points all in for everything." How is that not a better outcome for every single mass affluent or investor that doesn't have a lot of money enough to put into a serious hedge fund? Uh, and even then, hedge funds are fraught with all sorts of other issues. How is that not a better outcome for every single investor out there? It, it is massively a better outcome. And so what I've seen and what I, I know for certain is going to happen is the vast majority of money is going to come out of fidelity funds and hero price funds and financial advisors and independent you know, asset managers, and it's going to be going into um, robo-advisors. The other place it's going to be going is what we call um, – uh, smart uh, or smart beta ETFs. So if you think about what a lot of asset managers, even the good ones do, is we screen for fundamentals or technicals or some other attributes, right? And you have a list of characteristics and you screen for them and then you take whatever list that pops out and you basically overweight an index with those names. And, you know, you might be trying to capture some beta and that beta might be momentum, it might be value, it might be market cap at times, it might be um, uh, industry exposure, it could be uh, geographical exposure. And what a good asset manager does is at different times in the market cycle, you will overweight or underweight different betas. Um, and some people do this really well, and you can generate a lot of alpha from this. I, I think those asset managers that you used to pay 2% a year to do this, you should be now paying much less because they can just buy smart beta ETFs and kind of asset allocate. I'm actually waiting for the uh, robo-advisors to integrate smart beta ETFs so that I can put the smart beta ETFs into my robo-advisor and have it rebalance based on that. But that's another story. So that's, that's, the, that's the like retail side. On the professional side, there's something similar going on. So historically... Um, you know, most of the market has been made up of either long-only, uh, you know, asset managers or long-short equity or other kind of active strategies in the hedge fund world, um, you know, credit and, and all sorts of other stuff. 
Um, what's going on right now is long short equity and, and for the large part long only equity as well has basically just been about beta, right? Like I'm just gonna, I'm, I, I wanna be exposed to a certain beta um, and that's how I'm gonna generate my alpha. But you really don't generate alpha off of just picking a beta, you're just getting, you're just beta chasing. And that's fine, you may make a lot of money, but at the end of the day, your risk-adjusted returns are not very good. And so investors have wisened up to this over the last couple of years, especially given what happened in 08 and 09, and they've started to rip money away from these long-short equity and long-only equity hedge funds that were basically just beta chasing. And what's happening now is a lot of the industry is moving towards what we call quantumental and straight quant. So straight quant would be statistical arbitrage, where we do academic research. This is what I used to do. We do academic research to find alphas in the market, basically inefficiencies, uh, systematic ways to generate alpha, and uh, that are that are bereft of the beta, uh, you know, classic uh, risk risk management factors. Um, and we run it systematically without touching it. We just let the computer um, basically trade for us after doing the research and writing the code. And um, more and more of the market is moving in this direction. Um, the problem is you need more and more data sets to feed these algos because after a while, those alphas get arbitraged out as more and more people are arbitraging the inefficiencies. Um, this is also what kind of happened in 2010 um, when a lot of those data sets got arbed out and the stat arb guys had a really bad year. In the recent past, they've been hunting for new data sets like Estimize and like Stockwitz and all sorts of other stuff, and they're attempting to generate alpha based on new data sets that haven't been ARBed yet. And this is basically an arms race in the industry. Um, and they're doing very well again because they're getting all these new data sets and they're, they're, they're sucking in a lot of these, you know, the new interesting things going on. Um, and there's a million different kind of types of new data. Um, on the quantumental side, what they're starting to do is the same thing. They're starting to suck in all this other data, but instead of trading it systematically, there's still a portfolio manager and a bunch of analysts who are sitting there saying, well, you know, I, I think, you know, this says this and this says that, and we're going to kind of put it all together in our heads and make a decision on what that means for the stock. Um, and they might have a much more concentrated portfolio of, you know, 10 or 20 names instead of the stat arb guys who are trading hundreds of names and just attempting to overweight and underweight different things at different times uh, and, and capture those kind of systematic biases. And so a lot of stuff is moving towards quantumental and away from the classic stock picking model, which is basically like, I believe that Apple is going to do so much better than everything else. And, you know, fundamentally it's going to be good. So I'm going to put, I'm going to buy 20% of my portfolio in Apple um, and I think investors in hedge funds are wisening up to the fact that, like, you just don't want that exposure because most of the time that person's not going to be correct and the hedge fund's going to go down, which is what has happened historically. So I think all around people are getting smarter, but certainly data is playing a huge factor in the way that both the retail and, you know, institutional industries are changing. And I think things are moving more towards this data-driven model of, I need to understand what the statistics are. I need to understand what my risk is. I need to understand historically if this happens, then that will happen. And some of it's going to be done systematically and some of it's going to be done kind of, you know, quantumental. So this is a fun conversation that I'm sure you and I could probably have for a very long time, but I think our listeners might 
might tune off by then. Let's uh, let's close out here with actually. I'm gonna I'm gonna join together my my last two questions for you. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like founding a fintech company? And on the back of that, do you have any advice for students in particular that are working on their own fintech ventures? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, I'll kind of take it in the reverse order. Here's the best advice that I can give to anybody who's thinking about starting something, you know, right out of school. Uh, we often see stuff like Snapchat and Facebook and you know these consumer apps, Pinterest. They, they come straight out of school. Um, don't be fooled, you know, by the fact that big stuff can start straight out of school. Uh, it can, but there's a million things that are started straight out of school, and almost every single one of them fails. The reason being that students, even though they're brilliant, and I, you know, I got to say, of of all the students that I've met, the Wharton students, and I'm not pandering here, the Wharton students actually are kind of uh, not necessarily even the smartest, but just the best prepared to go into the industry. Um, we have a really great relationship with one of the um, with one of the fraternities at Wharton, and we take uh, undergrads each summer as um, as interns. And frankly, if I could hire them, I would have, but they had to go back to school. Um, and you know, but the thing that they lack, and thing that all students lack, is an understanding of the real problems within the industry. And I think what you guys do with this podcast and with the group is incredible because it actually exposes people to what those real problems are versus the perceived ones as a student where you haven't really been in the industry. The quicker you can accelerate your learning curve of the actual problems that take place and what needs to be built, the better chance you'll have when you start something of actually building something of value. I see a lot of students come out of school and they all basically want to tackle the same problems. And they're problems that students perceive that they have. Um, they're not actual problems in the industry. And I think what you really need to do is you need to go and work for another fintech startup uh, or a larger fintech company in the industry that you're interested in and learn about what those real problems are. Uh, I've seen the best companies come out of that scenario. And there's two reasons for that. One, you, you literally just get to hear from customers and clients and partners and biz dev partners and all sorts of other people about what those problems that they're having are. You get to see opportunities to fill, uh, you know, holes in the businesses that are already created that aren't filled, and you get to kind of spend somebody else's money to validate your own ideas, right? The second reason, which I think is maybe more important and connected to your first question, is um, you really need to understand the problems that go on at a startup and all of the very specific things that it takes to build a successful startup. There are problems in building a startup that only exist in building a startup that you will never get to see and experience unless you go work for another startup beforehand. And I got to say, we made a ton of mistakes. And I had been working at Soxers for two years. At a very early stage, I had seen basically everything. Um, I'd seen all the good parts, a lot of the mistakes, um, and I still made a ton of mistakes. And I would have made an insurmountable number of mistakes had I just tried to start Estimize uh, out, of, out of Geller Capital or before I had spent two years at Stockwood. So I would say definitely you know, get into another startup and, and, uh, and learn what those issues are. Spend a couple years there. It's totally worth it. Your idea is not going anywhere. You know, 99% sure your idea is not going to be copied by somebody else or else, you know, it really wasn't necessarily a great idea 
or it's just about execution and you could just execute better two years down the road than somebody else right now. And if that's what wins, that's what's going to win. The, um, you know, what's it like to, to found a startup? Uh, very different from the investment management world. The investment management world and the lifestyle associated with that is very structured. Um, it's, it's definitely a nice lifestyle, but, uh, I got to say, you know, the excitement and uh, ambition and, and kind of drive that you get from building something from scratch, there's nothing like it on earth. Um, like, I, 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 there's no way I could give, you know, this up to go back here right now at this time in my life. On the flip side of that, it is just, you know, you want to pull your hair out. Uh, what, what little I have left, like, you, you want to pull your hair out every day. And the roller coaster ride of emotions is incredibly extreme. Um, you have to have like a very level head, uh, and keep your eyes focused on, you know, uh, this, this ultimate goal that you have and be honest with yourself about mile markers that you're, you're trying to find to tell you that you're going in the right direction. Um, so it's, it's really a psychological battle as much as anything else to just stay in the game long enough to see what you're doing work. And, uh, we had a first, we had a tough first year, you know, that experiment, um, took a while to get done and uh, took a while for us to raise our first really initial round of capital. Um, and it was tough, but uh, it's worth sticking out and it's certainly worth starting something. I would say everybody should at some point in their career attempt to start something, but you need that understanding of, um, you know, of how to do it before you get into it. That's great advice. Uh, so to summarize, have thick skin, go work for a fintech startups to get some experience and most importantly listen to the Wharton fintech podcast <laughs> um that's probably as good a note to end on as any lee thanks a lot for joining us it was an absolute pleasure and hope to have you back on the podcast again sometime very soon cheers absolutely thanks daniel